Thanks, team. That was beautiful. So powerful. Um, good morning, everyone. My name's Obed, and I'm one of the leaders here. Um, and um, Dan and I um, have the just the joy of being able to lead and feed um, this congregation. And so it's a joy for me to always um, be here and to serve and everything like that. Um, as a church, we exist to be a church family on mission with Jesus. That's what we're all about. We want to love and serve each other um, like a family, but we also recognize that we exist in this community and in this city and in this world um, to make Jesus known and to make him famous. And so that's what we're all about. If you're new, welcome. Um, thank you for coming. I hope so far, we have warmly welcomed you, and we don't want you to just come and leave um, without us engaging with you in any way. And so if you haven't already done so, before you leave, we have a connect table um, at the back of the room. Make sure you go there, and one of our lovely members will be able to welcome you, grab your details so we can reach out um, to see how we can serve you. Um, also, throughout the week, we just don't gather on Sundays. Throughout the week, we gather in homes um, in and around San Diego in different neighborhoods, and we call these community groups. Um, some churches call them Bible studies, connect groups. You can call them anything, okay? It's totally fine. We call them community groups. And the purpose of community groups is for us to um, gather in smaller clusters um, so that we can get deeper um, in God's word and to really love and serve each other. And so if you're new, you're checking out our church, or you've been checking out our church and you're really interested in getting involved, I would highly recommend that you sign up to be part of a community groups. Community groups not currently meeting this summer. Um, that is August, July and August. We're going to be back in September, but that doesn't mean you can't sign up now. You can. Um, and so definitely sign up for a community. We'll reach out and get you connected with one. Um, again, like our church has been in existence for four years, all right, just over four years. And um, it's God has been doing the work, but he's been using, um, absolutely been using the generosity of you guys to be able to help us be sustained in this city. And so thank you for being generous with your finances. If you are a member of our church, um, we encourage you to keep giving and keep being generous. When you give, this is cheesy and I say it all the time, but I'm going to say it again. If you give, you're not giving to this church. You're actually giving through this church um, for the mission and for what God wants to do in and through our church. And so always remember that. Continue to be generous. And if you have any questions associated with giving, why should I give? How much should I give? Is it 10%? Is it this? Is it that? Like, reach out to Dan and I and we'll be happy to have conversations about you and um, with you about giving. Not next Sunday, the Sunday after is baptism at the bay. I was waiting for it. Thank you. <laughs> And um, baptism at the bay every day, we, every day, every year, annually, we celebrate baptism. Did I say every day? I did, but I caught myself, didn't I? Imagine if I didn't. That would be embarrassing. But every year we celebrate baptisms, and baptism is huge for us because we get to, it's one of the ways we get to celebrate the fact that God 
has actually been gracious to a person and saved them and opened their eyes to his grace and his mercy. Like, I love baptisms. I, I, I love hearing people come and share their testimony and publicly profess um, their commitment to Jesus Christ. And so that's why we do baptism. Um, it's going to be the last Sunday of August. We're not going to meet here. We're going to meet at the Bay at Crown Point Park. And it's going to be a great um, time of celebration. And if you have not been baptized and you are interested in being baptized, please reach out to us. Go on our website. The information's there. And the plan for us is to have a baptism class, I think, in not ne next week or something. Danny, next week? Yeah, uh, next week. Or if you're not able to make it, you know, I'll be able to connect with you just to give you an understanding of what baptism is and what it's all about. Um, we want to make sure that you're fully informed before you get baptized. I was going to say before you get dunked, but before you get baptized... I did say both of them. Um, anyway, next up is Weekend to Remember. Um, weekend to Remember is not just a marriage retreat, but it's for couples. And the reason uh, Eleanor and I were able to go to one of these re weekends, and it was fantastic. Um, it's going to be the first weekend in November. By the way, we're not the ones hosting it, a ministry called Life way or family life, family life are going to be hosting it. And it's a fantastic weekend for couples, okay? Whether you're um, been married for a long time or newly married or thinking about getting married, it's an amazing weekend where you go and you are like, there's so much good teaching and there's so many opportunities to connect. And so this is my challenge for all the um, husbands in here, okay? It's going to be, when is it? Like first, where is it? Is it? <laughs> oh, oh, here it is. Um, November 4th to 6th, all right? And we're in August now, okay? So you've got two months. I would highly recommend that you clear your schedule. Like just make sure you do everything you can to be there. I don't normally stand here and be passionate about things. I am, but this particular, this one is awesome. And the reason why is it's not because of the ministry doing the event. The reason why is because it's um, an incredible ministry that wants to do all they can to equip and strengthen marriages. And Eleanor and I, ever since we've been married, we've done our best to take um, advantage of every opportunity um, we are given to strengthen our marriage, right? Culture, it's like marriages in general, it's kind of becoming more countercultural than ever. And you need to surround yourself um, with people in our church family, but take advantage of opportunities to do that. And so guys, like lead in this, like notice sit down, speak to your, make sure you do all you can to be there, and it will be of great benefit to you, I promise. Um, what else? Info in this week's, oh yeah, we're going to be sending more information on that, but that is all I've got for today. Um, um, spend some time saying hello and chatting with one another, and then Dan will be up later to give the sermon. And kids, you are dismissed as well.
myself keep walking on Here's something up ahead Water falling like a song An everlasting stream Your river carries me home Let it flow, let it flow All my fountains A well that never will run dry I've rambled on my own Never believing I would find An everlasting stream Your river carries me
Hello. Good morning. Hey, uh, why don't we all take a seat and we're going to get started real quick here. Hey, my name is Dan Boss, and um, for those of you I haven't met yet, I see a lot of new faces. Um, I'm one of the, the pastor elders here, along with Obed, and uh, been here from the beginning of King's Cross four years, four and a half years ago. But it uh, is great to be with you this morning and opening God's Word um, with you. And uh, my, my family's been gone for the last few weeks on a big trip that we take every summer back to the Midwest. But I've realized in being gone how helpful it is to have this kind of weekly rhythm of meeting together on Sundays to worship and to study God's Word and to, to meet in our community groups throughout the week. Um, haven't had that in the last few weeks and I've uh, just realized how helpful it is for, for our family just to have that rhythm. So this, this trip that we just took, um, it's kind of cool. We go back to Michigan, like way up north in Michigan by... Um, pretty close to Canada. There's a family camp that my, wife, my wife's family has been going to for like almost 40 years straight. The same week, all these families come back to this, this same camp each, um, each first week of August. And we meet, um, have fellowship. We, it's a Christian camp, so we do like Bible study stuff um, and just kind of have fun on the lake. And, um, but it's so cool to see the relationships that have been formed like this one week every year all these families come back. We know these families. Serena grew up with these other kids who now have their own kids, and our kids play with their kids. So lots of kids. Um, and uh, it's just an awesome kind of picture, what I realized. It's a picture of like what Christian community is all about. It's a picture of like the heaven uh, that, that we're, we're called to, um, to live on this earth, but also the hope that we have in the future to have that sort of uh, blessing of, of community with one another. Um, last week, Jeremy preached on that very subject, the, the gift of community and what that looks like for the church as the body of Christ, that we might uh, care well for one another and, um, and spur one another on to live faithful lives in Christ. And um, he's not designed the church to be a bunch of individuals, but a uh, of of individuals together in a community um, forming his body. And so today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 51, and I want us to look at how this psalm points us to rejoice in the gospel. Um, I want to understand how the good news of Jesus and the life that we have in him can be seen better through the lens of this psalm. I know that for me, it was kind of hard to wrap my mind around how does Psalm 51 Tell me about Jesus and the gospel. Um, how does, you know, this psalm that David uh, wrote a thousand years before Christ about his adultery with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, how does that teach us more about the gospel and Jesus? Um, but I think as I studied it, it starts to point out some pretty clear and interesting things that talk, us about, talk to us about what the redemption of Jesus would look like and can look like in our lives for uh, today. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And another thing I realized is just how much Jesus 
in his ministry references the Psalms. It's like all over the Gospels, we see Jesus quoting the Psalms. Um, he says in Luke 24, uh, 44, everything written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms points to him, Jesus. And he uses the Psalms to point people to his own significance as the son of God. In, verse, uh, in Psalm 118, he quotes, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he quotes Psalm 22 when he's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All over the story of Jesus' life, it's clear that Jesus knew the Psalms and he points us back to them. So if we understand, if we want to more understand more clearly what the gospel is and rejoice in the gospel, and the gospel is all about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, and Jesus points us to the Psalms, we can find Jesus in the Psalms. So without further ado, let's, um, let's stand and open, open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 51. Um, this is uh, a tradition that we have just to honor God's word, that we stand and hear his word uh, spoken to us today. Um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV here, but let me read Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your, um, your insight into what it means to put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are open to what you have for us today. 
If you want to speak, Lord, we want to be listening. And I pray that you would do away with distractions in our minds and focus us on you and your word for us today. We praise your name and uh, we open ourselves to you this morning. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Okay, so this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 to help us rejoice in the gospel. Specifically, I want to look at three areas of the gospel. Our, Our sin and brokenness, Christ's sufficient sacrifice, and our union with Christ. But before we kind of dive into that, I want to look at what is the gospel? How do we define the gospel of Jesus? I found this uh, really helpful kind of description that showed how the gospel is often defined by kind of different, uh, in different ways. The first is that it defines, um, kind of defines the gospel by how we tell the story of Jesus, how we tell of Jesus and God's redeeming love, um, the actual message that we say. The second is that it points um, kind of to Jesus' life, like his death, his, his life, his death, his, his resurrection. And the third is the broadest, um, but it would define um, God's ongoing work in this world, in Christ, for the restoration in, in, of all things and making, making all things new. And I think all three of these kind of catch the light in a different way, but I think it's at its essence, the gospel is really about God's redemptive work in Jesus. Yes, it's not only the redemption for us individually, but also the collective um, restoration of the world. But at its essence, the gospel is about Jesus and what he has done on the cross. Without it, none of those different categories um, have meaning. Another important reminder is that um, what Tim Keller points out, that the gospel is news. It's good news. That's what the gospel means. It's good news, but it's not just advice. We don't view the gospel as a nice story or a bit of helpful information for us to make our great lives even greater, but it's eternal shifting news. It changes everything. Those who receive it, it will change everything. So as we look at the gospel through the lens of Psalm 51, the first place we need to start is kind of understanding the reality of our predicament the reality of our true status as we compare our lives to an infinitely holy God. And as we look at Psalm 51, David rightly acknowledges this reality right from the start. He says, have mercy on me, O God. He goes on in verses 3 and 4, I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. The reality is that David was speaking in this psalm from a place of guilt and shame after being confronted about his adultery and murder. But this raw and honest glimpse at his sinfulness seems to go deeper than just being caught in this recent sin in his life. He states in verses 5 and 6, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. It's not that David just got found out about some recent sin. 
he states clearly that this has been an ongoing development in his life. And that's something that the Bible states clearly for us too. Even ever since our ancestors took the fruit of the tree in Eden, we have found ourselves plagued with sin and brokenness. From the time we took our first breath, breath in fact, while we are still in the, t- in, the, in the womb, we were sinners. Now, um, this is not a popular idea in our world today. We hear a lot, of different, um, a lot of different voices speaking about who we are and what, what our lives are made out. But in this doctrine, uh, in the Bible, we hear really clearly this doctrine of original sin. The reality that because of our very humanity, we're born into a fallen nature. We're unable on our own to be holy and pure and free from sin. I feel like a lot of times in our world, what we hear is the very opposite. You're enough. You're perfect just as you are. Just be who you want to be. And this message is the message that our world is telling us. And to be fair, there are, um, there are things we need to understand. that We are made in God's image. We are unlike every other creature in the universe, that we've been given many good things by God's grace. But we've also been ruined by the rebellion in Eden. Things are not as they are meant to be in our world. And that's what David's declaring here, the sinfulness even from his birth. And therefore he comes to God crying out, have mercy on me, O God. David gives us the example here to follow that we need God's help in redemption. Can't do this on our own. Um, The reformer Martin Luther has, was well acquainted with this idea. He writes um, this quote here I want to read. It says, God has assuredly promised grace to the humble, that is, to those who lament in despair of themselves. But no man can be utterly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his powers, devices, endeavors, will, and work, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely the God Uh, namely of God alone. For as long as he is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing toward his salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself, and therefore he is not humbled before God. He presumes that there is, or at least hopes, that he may at length attain to salvation. Our understanding, like David, of our nature and our place as we stand before God is as Luther puts it, despair and desperation. We have to understand that we have nothing in ourselves or our own ability to be saved. I love um, the way Dane Ortland, a pastor and writer, puts it. He says, salvation is not assistance. It's a rescue. We are broken, and part of the brokenness that we have is that we don't feel broken. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor and writer, puts it this way. You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of that sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves, and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. We have a disease, and the symptom of that disease is that we feel pretty healthy. But I don't know if you've ever experienced kind of the pale glimpse at your own sinfulness. 
Have you ever been confronted in sin and caught in the act? Or dove deep into contemplation and confession? It doesn't always feel good, but it does feel good afterwards to feel honest confrontation with who you really are. And the only way to get to where we want to be with God in restoration is through the hard road of confession and honesty. It's only through the confession and confrontation with our own sinfulness can we get to where David got with God, crying out, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And this honesty is where God calls us to to come um, before him. This honesty and desperation is were, were characteristic of the people that came to Jesus in his ministry. The broken and the destitute, the sinners, were all drawn to him because they understood they needed rescue. In, in Mark 2, 17, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but the sinners. So the first step that we need in coming to, to God is honesty with where we are. The gospel is meaningless and utterly useless if we have no understanding of our own need of a Savior. It's just so easy to go through our lives here and just compare yourself to others and kind of think, man, if I, if I judge myself by the standards of this world, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. But it's a gift of God's grace that we might be able to see clearly how we compare to the holiness of God and his call for us to be holy. It's only in this understanding that we can find true salvation in Christ. Until we reach the end of ourselves, we can't fully grasp how badly we need Jesus. I love how J.I. Packer puts, it, puts this idea. The index of the soundness of a man's faith in Christ is the genuineness of the self-despair from which it springs. I'll read that again. The index of the soundness of a man's faith in Christ is the genuineness of the self-despair from which it springs. That's our starting place. Okay, moving on to the second point, that Jesus has given the sufficient sacrifice for us. It's only after we, we grasp our real condition and the desperation in which we find ourselves can we truly appreciate and worship and glorify Jesus for his sacrifice. I love how David, out of the confession of his own sinfulness, he begins to ponder what can be done about the situation. And he goes on to state the inadequacy of the sacrificial system. We see this in verse six, uh, verses 16 and 17. It says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. What David is pointing out here is that the sacrificial system is really just a temporary and insufficient solution to the problem of sin. If we go back to the story of David's life in Psalm 51, that he wrote Psalm 51 out of, we, we see the prophet Nathan confronting uh, David on his sin of adultery and murder. This is found in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, and we see this interaction where he says, 
um, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So God has put away David's sin here, which in some ways seems unjust. David is an adulterer and a murderer. Why would a righteous judge put those sins away? I don't know if I fully have an answer to the mystery of this, this passage, but John Piper kind of touches on this. I want to read this quote. He says, The outrage that we feel when God seems to simply pass over David's sin would be good outrage if God were simply sweeping David's sin under the rug. But he is not. God sees from the time of David down the centuries to the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who would die in David's place so that David's faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work unites David with Christ. And in God's all-knowing mind, David's sins are counted as Christ's sins. Christ's righteousness is counted as his righteousness. And God justly passes over David's sin. The sin of David has been dealt with not because of burnt offerings that David made to atone for them. It's because of Jesus. David says instead that his offering is just a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The animal sacrifices in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant were insufficient to forgive sin. In fact, it says this clearly if we read in uh, Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 2. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who, who draw near. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And we've, we see this also in Romans. Paul describes this. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The sin of David has been fully paid for in the blood of Christ. David's broken spirit and contrite heart is what Jesus is speaking of when he calls, I have not come to call the righteous, but to sinners, to repentance. This is the only condition that God requires for us to participate and partake in the forgiveness that Jesus offers. We need to come with humility and meekness, understanding our need and understanding there is no other sacrifice or offering that can work to make us righteous. The blood of Jesus is the only perfect and sufficient sacrifice that we have, and it's the only way we can find true forgiveness of sins. There's another kind of a side note here that I've, I came across that's kind of just really cool. In Psalm 51, um, it shows us how the, the, the old covenant in Psalm 51 is connected with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It says... In verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. So I have a picture of what hyssop is. I don't know if we can put that up. It's a little flowering plant. Fairly nice. Um, I'd like that in my garden. 
Um, it's a common medicinal plant used for its antiseptic purposes, but it's also a plant that actually God had commanded the Israelites to use for the spreading of blood on the doorposts um, before the Exodus, um, for the Passover. God would use this blood put on by hyssop to pass over those houses because of the blood on the doorposts. And we also read that this is the very plant that was stretched up to Jesus while he was on the cross suffering. They offered him sour wine to relieve the agony. Um, the perfect lamb of God was bleeding on the cross, and this plant was used to give him some relief. So when David writes that this specific plant um, be used um, to give him cleansing, I believe he's drawing people back to the Old Testament, what the Israelites um, used um, before the Exodus, and kind of prophetically looking forward to Christ dying on the cross. They could have used something else. He could have said palm branches or something, you know, but it's, it's very specifically hyssop, which is kind of cool. All right, I want to move on to the last point, um, that we would have a better understanding of God's love for us and a better understanding of who we are in Christ, being united with Christ. So that our lives may be shaped more and more to look like Jesus. So we're called not only to humble confession like David does in this passage, but also crying out for God's restoration to take hold of in our lives. That we wouldn't continually be stuck in cycles of sin and guilt and shame, but trusting in faith that God will bring us through in restoration. We see this in verse 8. He says, let me... Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And then again in verse 12, restore to me the joy of salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So I want to dig a little bit deeper in that last verse. I love how David prays for God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. Not just emotional happiness of good fellowship or good movie or feelings, um, you know, in a good mood or something like that, but a joy that goes deep because of God's salvation. I've, I've found myself as a, as a worship leader, I found myself wanting to kind of dig into that a little bit more because I know that we come on Sunday morning, sometimes it's like, I'm really tired, going through a hard season, and I just don't feel like coming to worship and singing songs of praise to God. But we have to remember that we have a joy that goes beyond our circumstances and our feelings. It goes completely beyond what we can do. We have a joy that goes deeper and a more constant joy than we can find in this world. The joy of God's salvation comes from knowing the eternal truth that we can never be separated from God. And it'll be that way for all eternity. We will die and we will stand before God and in that moment, we will be justified by Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. And we'll be welcomed into the presence of our creator. I think one of the most helpful things for me in coming to a greater understanding of that truth is um, this idea throughout the New Testament that we are united with Christ, that we have union with Jesus. Our lives are actually hidden in Christ, as the Bible uh, puts it. This is a theological concept that is just 
kind of woven throughout through, um, most of the New Testament. But it's just a great idea of us remembering that our life is sustained by the joy of God's salvation. We read about this union with Christ in Romans 6. It says, We are those who have died to sin. How can we then live? How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Jesus, Christ Jesus? We were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We were baptized in Christ's, Christ's death and now are raised with him to live a new life. That's pretty awesome, that truth. And we're going to celebrate baptism in a couple weeks. So if there is anybody who wants to experience that new, that death and the resurrection in Christ, let us know. Um, we see the same concept of death and baptism and life united with Christ in, um, in the book of Colossians. It says, Colossians 3 uh, verse 3 and 4 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. If we're going to live lives that experience the joy of God's salvation, we need an understanding of who we are in Christ. Because we're united with Christ, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is working in our lives too. Not passively, but actively. And this is helpful to remember for myself, too, that we need to actively seek out and rely on God's Spirit and the power that it gives us to live lives boldly for Jesus. We saw this in Philippians when we were studying just a couple months ago, that God has called us to live by the Spirit, allowing Him to do His work and it says in Philippians 2.13, to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's God who is working in us. We just need to be willing to be used. In, in 2 Timothy, it says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It's not enough to beat ourselves up into holy living or fruitful living, but it's rather letting our affections for Christ expand in our lives that it excludes the lesser powers of temptation and sin and the love of the world and ourselves. There's a, um, you may have heard of this, there's a famous book written in the early 1800s by a pastor named Thomas Chalmers. And the title of this book is just so good. It nails this concept. It says, uh, the title is The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He's basically pointing out that the goal of our lives as Christians is that we would let the affection for God through the gospel of Jesus Christ displace the lesser worldly affections. As soon as we love something new and we love it more, it pushes out the lesser things in our lives. And I think that's the big way that we can do... Um, we can do more by understanding that our lives, the very core of who we are, is united by Christ. It's a holy mystery, but it's a reality for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. So my prayer for us is that the truth of our union with the risen Christ would compel us to live lives 
of passionate and reverent worship. That we would realize more fully the joy of God's salvation in our everyday lives. So as I, as I close, I, I want to offer an encouragement to anyone who may be here who has not put their faith in Jesus. If you haven't had an opportunity to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and make that commitment in your life, I just want to offer that. We would love to pray with you, Obed or any other church leaders here. We'd love to pray with you if that's something that God's put in your heart. Um, let us know. Let me pray as we close, and we're going to join together in worship again. God, we thank you for your word for us today. We thank you for this psalm that shows us what it looks like to come before you in brokenness and repentance. And we thank you for the example of David's confession and how it's answered in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for the hope that we have in the gospel. That there is no ritual, there is no sacrifice or offering that we need to make to find our salvation. We simply need to have a heart that is broken and longing for you to redeem in faith. We thank you for your word that promises that if we simply confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that you have raised him from the dead, God, we will be saved. God, would you move in our hearts? Would you give increased affection for you that it would push aside the lesser affections in our lives? We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.